0: Welcome to On the Record with Tiffany. There are heroes throughout San Antonio, men and women that go the extra mile to make lives better. During the next hour, you'll be inspired as we introduce you to these unsung heroes. And now here's your host, Tiffany Jones-Smith. We're back with another episode of On the Record with Tiffany. I love having people on my show just to talk about they are and and what they do, how they contribute to uh, what we know to be the history of San Antonio. The history of San Antonio within Texas and the history of Texas within the United States. Um, It's just always been something of interest to me. So today um, I have my good friend Greg on and um, he he is a uh, well-known historian within the Texas community. Um, Greg, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Hey, Tiffany. How have you been, ma'am? I'm good. I'm
1: good. Uh, it's been, it's it's been a while since I've gotten to see you. I know. Uh, some unexpected changes, but, you know, one more chapter done, and let's start the next one. So that's how I kind of look at it. How and why? Why am I doing this? How did I get started? History has always kind of been my thing. I've enjoyed it all through school, high school, and all that kind of stuff. Some of my favorite teachers were history teachers. My dad was a huge history buff. He was a metal detector, so he he metal detected his whole life. So he was always reading where old forts were and old market roads and and just – Mapping out different places where he might get to go and metal detect in Texas and what was going on in a particular time. So my brain was always kind of geared towards doing those things. When I got out of high school, I went into the uh, restaurant business. I did restaurants and kitchens for 17 years. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, loved every minute of it. I, the community of the kitchens, I wouldn't trade that in for a thing. The pressure and the work of the kitchens. I don't miss a bit, (laughs) but those people that the people that I worked with in those kitchens, I've met so such a diverse crew of people, man, from the bottom of the barrel to really top notch people and and everyone in between from all walks of life, from all backgrounds, from different cultures, different foods presented to me in a kitchen. So that really, I ended that after my dad passed away and my brother re up for Iraq at 40 years old. So I moved back to Castorville, Texas to stay with my mom to help her out. Started going to UTSA, got my bachelor's, um, and I got on with the Institute of Texan Cultures, the uh, museum, the cultural museum that UTSA runs. Uh, worked there about a year, and I started working on my master's, got my master's knocked out, um, got brought on full-time about the time I finished my master's. And... I was lucky enough to have a department head named Lupita Barrera who really mentored me in um, the joy of research and the joy of learning people's story, the joy of, of telling a person's story that hasn't been told before. And not only the feeling you get telling it, but the feeling they get that it's now being told Um, that, that, Right there is one of the main reasons I've gotten into this research into Negro League baseball. And my research didn't start at a national level. I didn't start with these guys that are in the airport exhibit, like Rube Foster and Willie Wells. And well, I knew who Willie was because I was from Austin, and that was one of the first Negro leaguers that my dad ever talked about, was Willie Wells. My dad got me into baseball. My dad was a passionate baseball man, he had me reading books on hitting and we had the baseball encyclopedia around and he's the first man that ever exposed me to the negro leagues but we i've gotten to i I've, I've done it i did the national stuff is there everybody's told the national story rube foster willie biz mackey all of those cats that are in the hall of fame their story has been told i represented it in the exhibit we did together out at the airport but the part of that exhibit that is closest to my heart is the local stuff, the uh, San Antonio Black Sox stuff, the um, East Side colored baseball. What's go ahead, Tiff? I'm sorry. The Black Aces, right? Yeah, yeah. All of see. That's what San- I loved about the
0: exhibit and about what you did there was instead of just going with all of the the names that everybody knows, like Jackie Robinson, you were like, you know let's look at people that had a huge influence but that you 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 don't know that the average person does not know
1: and when we got mule in on that on on that exhibit he's a perfect example of that because mule probably mentored more young black baseball players in this area and was uh, tell our audience who 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 Mule is? John Mule Miles. He is a local celebrity in San Antonio. Um, He does actually hold the Major League record, even though Major League doesn't recognize Negro League records, for consecutive games with a home run, with 11 straight games where he hit a home run. Nobody's even come close to that. And we're talking Reggie Jackson, Mickey Mantle, Babe Ruth, all of the greats. Nobody's come close to touching that. Wow. But uh, I, unfortunately, I did not have the opportunity to personally meet Mr. Miles. About the time I was getting into this, I missed both him and a gentleman named Cleveland Grant by about six months to a year. And from all the people that I've spoken to, those two men specifically were as important to the black baseball community in San Antonio as anybody I've heard spoken of before or since. Um, I think Mule probably topped that list, and it was so awesome to, to finally get a chance to talk to Kenneth, because I knew that Dick O'Neill, who lefty, who you, the the white gentleman that played in the Negro Leagues that was on Deborah's calling show, him and Kenneth, I didn't realize him and Kenneth were such great friends, because I knew that that Dick and 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 John Mule were were they were once they met they were like man you couldn't get rid of them they were they were buds. Didn't to the separate them. <laughs> yeah, because they, they both went through the kind of the same experience because Mule was the first black player to play in the South Texas leagues, baseball leagues. And Dick O'Neill was one of the only white men to ever play professionally in the Negro leagues. So Dick told me one time when they asked Mule a question, they said, how did it feel to be the only black man on a white team? They asked Dick, how did it feel – to be the only white man on a black team and they both had I- nearly word for word exact same answers and ever since wow. that day they were just best buddies you know they they understood each other's experience at that point but that's that's the kind of, of of person that from what i've heard that mule was you know he he was there to tell the story and when things started happening in the mid to late 90s with with negro leagues really beginning to get a lot more attention he was so happy, like, hey, you know, Buck O'Neill is so happy right now, I, or was so happy as as things began to really pick up momentum, especially into the 2000s. Every time you what, see Buck O'Neill... What caused a,
0: everybody to start paying attention to the Negro Leagues? In um, the, in the
1: it, there was a few scholars out there that really started doing some hard research. Um, I can't, off the top of my head, he's got the... Negro League Baseball Encyclopedia. He wrote that. And then there was another gentleman that wrote, only the ball was white. And I can't recall their names off the top of my head right now. But they really began a movement in the late 80s and early 90s to where researchers started getting into it. And when researchers start putting information out there, you know, facts, that's what we do is we present our facts and we make a case for history. And once you begin to make a case for history that – inevitably can't be denied then the story is going to get feed at some point point. and I think you know um, the development of the cable networks uh, the development of social media through the 2000s I think all of that played a big part because social media can do a lot of good things if used correctly you know mm-hmm. if it used incorrectly it can do a lot of bad things but there's good ways to use it and I think that was a big part through the 2000s of, of how the story really began to get out there. You started to see a lot more scholars paying attention. It's like you said, you know, this history just that wasn't being told or was being covered or whatever reason it wasn't getting out there was beginning to get out there. And, you know, basically the the, the dam breaks. You know, you can only hold the water back so long mm-hmm. and the dam breaks. So
0: that's what happened. Greg, I have to say I'm I'm thankful to people like you who are keeping up with uh black history. Uh because if it weren't for your love for baseball, just unabiding I mean anybody that's listening can hear your unabiding love for the game and for the players of the game. If it weren't for that, um we wouldn't have such great history about uh, Negro League baseball players.
1: You can thank me, Tiffany, but I think the big thanks goes to m- when I started to sit down with guys like Joe Lewis and Raymond Hardy and Marion Shaw and. Kirby, you went and met people,
0: right? Yeah, I because put have loved to it this. so
1: much. You went to go I and put a face to the history. Them. And how do you hate someone when you know their story? That's right. How do you do that? You may not. You may not like them. But once you know a person's story and what they've been through and what they deserve, part of their stories deserve to be told, it's pretty hard to hate a person. You, right. you can disagree on as many points of contact as you want to disagree on. But if you've taken the time to listen to a person's story, actually listen to them, genuinely listen to them, it's really hard to hate that person. And my, I think that's where it started for me.
0: Now, uh, For my listeners, I just want you to, to uh, come back and listen to Greg Garrett. Greg Garrett is is, uh, one of the best historians uh, for uh, baseball and for the Negro Baseball uh, League and the Negro Negro Baseball experience. And uh, Greg is not African-American. He's actually Caucasian. And he is an example of what today we need to pay more attention to. And that's our fellow man and, and stop looking at the things that make us different, but start looking at the things that, that unite us and that we're alike around and, and baseball is one of them. Texas Kidney Foundation and SACIM uh, did, along with uh, the, the Museum of Texan Cultures, we did an exhibit um, and Greg was the lead on the exhibit for the Museum of Texan Cultures. And he uh, just really did a bang up job on on the Negro Baseball League. And, you know, I didn't know Greg. This is my first time meeting him and kind of getting to know uh more about the Negro Baseball League. And Greg is is just a wealth of knowledge on the players and on what's what actually transpired during uh those years of uh segregated baseball. Greg, can you you uh, Yeah,
1: yeah, I'm here. I'm sorry. I was listening to you. <laughs> Zoning out a little bit.
0: Can you <laughs> kind of tell our our uh audience a little bit more about in the last segment you were talking about um, uh just why you you ended up getting into this, but tell tell them um, about your interviews with with uh, the players, because you actually went out and met the players from uh, the, the Negro Baseball League.
1: Yes, I did. The Texas, um, the Texas well, players. yeah, so, some of them. I got a chance to meet s- several of them. Um, I've worked with a, a group of guys from San Antonio that told me, the San Antonio story, uh, mm-hmm. and I also worked with it. This is when Invisible Diamonds first got off the ground back in 2015.
0: Invisible um, Diamond is the name of the the um, of the exhibit that Greg created uh, for SACAM and Texas Kidney Foundation and uh, University uh, and uh, Museum of Texan and Cultures.
1: Yeah, we, we started it back in 2015. We had a couple of programs at the museum. Um, the first one that we did, uh, I presented, and we had a couple of the fellas at that one, I believe. But the second one that we did was later in the summertime, and we were actually able to get Dr. Damian Thomas from the Smithsonian African American Museum, he was the sports curator there.
0: Wow.
1: Uh, we were also able to get Dr. Revel, who was the head of the Center for Negro League Baseball Research, um, up in the other on the other side of Dallas. It's up in North Texas somewhere. Uh, and then we also had several players that were still alive that sat on a panel and answered some questions from Dr. Revel, and then answered some questions from the audience. And um, in that group of guys, I had. Uh, players that played in San Antonio proper uh, as early as the 1920s A.D. Carpenter I think when I spoke to him he was 96 years old he uh, died a couple of years later and Roy White who we wanted to try to get into the exhibit but we just couldn't get enough solid information and Mm -hmm. Mr. White passed away and we couldn't get a hold of any family members and I'm of the ilk that I would rather not put it in if I'm not going to be sure about it. I mm-hmm. I like to be sure about my research. Yeah. So and Roy was pushing eighty five, eighty six, and and he and had really played. hear he the
0: information from him, not from yes. from, some, exactly. from a second source, secondary exactly. Source. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so and then that so I I worked with the guys in in San Antonio proper, and this was a bunch of fellows from the Black Sox, Everett Turner and Dittney Johnson and. Then we had Joseph Vaughn, who played with the San Antonio Indians. And these guys were all playing over at uh, out near Wheatley Heights, out in that area, right across from the MLK Academy at Brooksdale. And MLK, there was an old baseball field there. And a couple blocks down in the Wheatley Heights neighborhood is where the Wheatley Heights All-Stars played. There was another field down there. You know, part of the backbone of it was black baseball. And, and that story needed to be told. Uh, it's still being told. We're still working on finding where all the fields were. I'd like to get historical markers put at some of these fields. Uh, I just worked with uh, Vance from San Antonio Express News. We did an article and I took them around and, and showed them a couple of spots where the fields were. And and that my goal is to someday have markers representing where these men played in the story that needs to be told there. Uh, especially at Lincoln Park, because now you've got the big, huge community center, the Eastside Community Center over there. You've got several baseball fields where the kids are playing ball. So if there's a legacy still around San Antonio that was started by black baseball, Lincoln Park is where it's at, in my opinion. Um, now, as far as the rural story, I was able through a good friend of mine, Clifton Pfeiffer, who I had worked with as an interpreter, a historical interpreter. Uh, he was from Kerrville. He began to introduce me to the Kerrville All-Stars that were still alive. This is Raymond Red Hardy and, Joe Lewis and Marion Shaw and, uh, Alan Hicks. And so I began to put a face, you know, to this history and it became personal to me, you know, I
0: I have a question during the, so who watched the games where we know that the, the leagues were segregated, but were the games segregated?
1: Um, in curville, no.
0: Yeah, like like the people who were watching the games.
1: The no, look, it was curville. The the stands were integrated. People were coming to watch baseball. I mean, but if you even think back to the between 1910 and 1920, before Rube Foster got the Negro National League off the ground, Rube Foster was touring in the United States, and probably other than Joe Lewis, was most well-known African-American person in the United States. Um. He had the largest black enterprise next to – it was a a makeup industry in the 1920s, was the only Mm -hmm. larger black enterprise than baseball. And it wasn't just black people going to those games. Wherever they were in the United States, he – Rube Foster figured out a way to travel through the South successfully during Jim Crow, during segregation, and still white people were filling the stands as much as black people were. In the South, in the 1910s. You know, this was happening in San Antonio too. You know, maybe not quite as much uh, in the urban area as quickly as it was happening in Curveo because in Curveo, they told me, man, in the 40s, you look up in the stands, and people were just watching baseball. Mm -hmm. And I talked to him about – so the stands were integrated, but you couldn't go down and sit at the restaurant and eat inside. He said – We didn't need to do that. We'd ask one of them to go get food for us. They'd bring the food down to us. They'd ask one of the white folks in the stands to go get the food for them, and they'd bring the food down to them at the ballpark to keep them from even having to worry about the hassle of the restaurant. But that team in Kerrville, they were breaking a lot of historical barriers, in my opinion, way before, A, the town um, desegregated. Because that didn't happen until 63, if I'm not mistaken. It was a forced desegregation of the schools. Yeah. And um, they were already integrating the baseball team. The Kerrville All-Stars were already integrating before Brown versus Board of Education. Um, Bill, uh, oh, man, I can't think his last name off the top of my head. And he they're going to kill me when I can't remember it. He managed them. And he was a real important figure in both San Antonio and in Kerrville. He came from the East Coast, and his name will pop into – his last name will pop into my head here in a minute. But he managed the team. He didn't care what color he were. He wanted to win games. Mm-hmm. So there was one old boy, white boy, that, that lived in Curbio that pitched, and he could throw. And I can't remember his name uh, without looking at my research. I want to say Tommy McDaniels, but I, don't quote me on that. He went on to become the police chief of Kerville. Mm-hmm. He pitched for the Kerrville All-Stars on a regular basis. And this was in the mid-50s. You know, they were bringing Mexican guys in to play on that team that lived in Kerrville. They would go and scrimmage against some of the high school team. You know, the high school team, the white high school team. When
0: So the you know, teams were desegregating in baseball before
1: the uh, schools and the cities yeah. were. And that was... Even in San Antonio, you saw – I mean, it didn't happen. I'm not going to say that every game there was white folks and black folks playing together. I'm not going to say that. But the ice was beginning to thaw, and there was beginning to be cracks, and you were and beginning to see – sports was at the forefront of that. Yes. Baseball was at the forefront. I, I think the military and sports have played a, a, a huge role in breaking down – a lot of those barriers because it allowed
0: sports.
1: Yeah, and it allowed an individual to prove themselves Mm -hmm. in a way that they hadn't had an opportunity to prove themselves. And Rube Foster was very aware of not only how we perform on the field, but how we perform off the field means just Mm -hmm. as much. Mm-hmm. He understood that. And what was amazing about Rube Foster is uh, you had the American league president at the time, Ben Johnson, and you also had John McGraw, who I believe was the general manager for the New York Giants baseball team. They treated Rube Foster. These were both white men. They treated Rube Foster as a baseball equal. they, color had nothing to do with their relationship between the three of those men. I think they were a lot closer to integrating baseball before 1920 than a lot of people give them credit for now, Tennessee mountain Landis judge Landis came along and whether or not he was a stout racist, he projected that. And that was because he was doing the owner's work and there were several stout racists. In ownership of baseball at that time. Mm -hmm. So once Landis became the commissioner of baseball, everything got pretty shut down as far as the progress Van Johnson and John McGraw had made. That's just my historical opinion. There may be others that differ with that, but from what I've looked at and what I've read and the attitudes that people had toward what Rube Foster was trying to do, I really feel they were a lot closer than even Rube may have thought they were.
0: You know, Greg, a lot of what we're seeing today, uh, we, can, we can look back at baseball's history and, and learn from. You know, some of, some of the things that we, that, you know, there's more that makes us, that unites us than divides us. We are more alike than we are different. And that's what, what baseball continuously teaches us. That uh, performance, camaraderie, seeing your, uh, your fellow man for who they are is more important than uh, what
1: but, they are. And, and, but it also gave those African-American men the opportunity to put themselves onto a pedestal that they had not been able to put themselves onto before. So think of the confidence that it put into them, the self-confidence. You know, think of the way they began to look at themselves when they became financially independent. Mm. You know that they didn't have to worry about, you know, what am I going to do for a doctor? When when people began to respect who they were as a human being because they were a baseball player, those are things about winning. There's something
0: about playing, doing your very best, and winning and achieving. That that uh, cannot be taken away from you,
1: and and if you know baseball, then you know whether or not a person can play, mm-hmm. and and if you love baseball, then you really don't care what they look like. You just love the fact that they can play.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, sports, so sports kind of bring that out. Period. Baseball, football, basketball—those uh, yep. something about athletics. And the the competition that goes on there, and just seeing someone performing at their very level best, that that uh, just elicits respect.
1: I think the the more I've learned about Rube and and the man he was, I I, I think he's probably. I would put him right there with Branch Rickey as having been one of the baseball minds that's done the most to move baseball forward since its establishment as a professional sport in the 1860s with the Cincinnati Reds starting off as the first baseball team. I I don't think that Rube gets enough credit for how far he moved the sport forward. And I think you can see how important he was – A, he put so much of his heart and his soul into it. It drove him crazy. He died in an insane asylum. And he, in 27 or 28, is about the time he had to go in. I'd have to go and look at the date. I know it was the mid to late 20s. He went into the insane asylum, and almost immediately you begin to see the league fracture again. So even with people like C.I. Taylor still around – even with people like you know, Cumberland Posey running the Homestead Grays, Effa Manley at, at, you know, a female owner, black female owner of a baseball team, Effa Manley, the Newark Eagles. Even with wow. these great these great minds, yeah, she's in the Hall of Fame. Um, even with these great minds around the league, still fractured, and it was never really the same. I mean, it still, it still provided a platform where you. You learned men like Josh Gibson and Satchel and you, you learned all these names that came along and it produced Jackie and Monty Irvin and all of these cats. But when Rube disappeared from the mix, it was never that that centrifugal force that was driving everything. Mm-hmm. He was just the engine behind it. And everybody understood that. And you may not have liked his tactics at times and you may not have liked his honoriness and his, his hard headedness. But you knew he believed in his people, his community, his sport, and his players. And that's all they needed. And that's how he got that off the ground. And when you're that genuine about something, I think that that's helped me even in my, in my research and going out and being able to, to walk up to total strangers and by the end of a conversation – have them trustworthy enough to begin to share important moments in their lives with me, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, especially someone, you know, who's this white boy walking into the neighborhood all of a sudden coming and knocking on the door and asking about baseball, mm-hmm. you know, and a couple of them tested me to see if I was serious or not. And, and once they realized the passion I had and how important I knew their story was to get out there, um, then. And how committed then, you were to making sure that the story was accurate Yes. Well, and now at that point, it's become personal. And it's, now it's something that I'm attached to emotionally. It's part of who I am. Um, and it's something I'll never stop doing at this point is, is promoting that story. Because, like I said, the national story is there, but there's so many nooks and crannies to the local story, the local town teams. I don't know if you had a chance to watch the, uh, the deal we did with SACAM right after we had the exhibit. But one direction I would really like to start going, if there's a way I could could find either plantation journals or slave journals of some of some form, because I believe Buffalo Soldiers and Freedmen colonies were kind of the spring that you know I mean? started, the, yeah, the spring that started the river. You know, that, that top of the river, that small trickle that turns into something that mm-hmm. feeds into the Gulf of Mexico. I think that they had a major, Buffalo soldiers especially, because I think the military had a major role in spreading baseball throughout the country and to mm-hmm. these different communities. But I would love to be able to, even if, I, even if it's outside of Texas, is to be able to find some slave journals or some plantation journals that, that talked about the slaves playing games. It's really hard for me to believe that during the Civil War in the South, as much ball that was played during downtime, both by Confederate soldiers and Union soldiers, mm-hmm. that there weren't slaves around seeing these boys playing this ball at some point or time. Every culture has a stick and ball game in their culture. So, that's even an if
0: interesting idea, I hadn't even thought about that. Well, I wonder, but, were they doing that?
1: Yes. Well, the reason that it kind of got legs in my brain is I was doing some research and I went to high school in Lockhart. I graduated from Lockhart, Texas. Go Lions. Um, And I had a lot of very close friends that were from St. John Colony. They went to school in Lockhart, Mm -hmm. which is a freedman colony, one of the oldest ones in Texas, actually. And um, I started doing some research and boom, St. John Colony had a baseball team. Now, this was early 1900s. I don't know how far back this went, but that's, what, second generation, third generation freedmen, and mm-hmm. they got a baseball team, organized baseball team, and I started digging a little bit more, and there was another little Friedman colony um, called Ebon, E-B-O-N, near Lockhart also, and I found one sentence that said, I think it might have been even St. John's played the Ebon Colony team or the Ebon team. So I found these real brief descriptions of these uh, established Friedman colonies having baseball teams. So I'm like, well, geez, how far does that go back? You know, what, yeah. you, so you start thinking.
0: Like in, in
1: historical terms, like, huh, and that couldn't have just popped up. No. Well, I've taken it back in San Antonio. I've got it back to a, the earliest like article I can find was about is is very early 1880s and it actually mentions a Juneteenth celebration out at San Pedro Park and they were going to give be giving away blue ribbons for everybody that won their contests. One of the contests they were going to be giving away giving away for was a baseball contest. So that tells me there was multiple teams. Alright, if they're gonna be having a baseball contest, they gotta to to play against each other. You know, there's gotta be two teams at least, probably more. I gotta believe this isn't the first day they just all of a sudden gathered up eighteen guys, found them ball gloves, found them bats, found them baseball, and said, Hey, we're gonna go out here and play this brand new game for you guys. And we're gonna give you a blue ribbon for it. This you got see, you gotta read between the lines of this research because it it just wasn't reported on. So mm-hmm. that tells me if they were organized prior to that day, obviously organized enough to have multiple teams, players, uh, enough players on each team to field the team organized into teams, separate teams. So if they knew that they were going to come to the park and play, then they probably already been playing against each other prior to mm-hmm. that. So that would tells me there was probably some sort of an organized league prior to that 1882, 1883 or whatever. So, Reading between the lines, you know, mid-1870s, black baseball is already a part of San Antonio culture, and that's – I think it goes further back than that. But it's, it just really strikes me as hard to believe it, that slaves had access to plantation spots. Certain slaves had access. You know, pretty much there was a slave in every point on plantation doing something. It's really hard for me to believe there's baseball being played on the plantation that slaves didn't see it. It is very hard for me to believe that and not comprehend what was going on be able to digest it take it back to their little slave community down at the bottom of the plantation and get their own ball game going i think it's plausible
0: and you may be right because how did how did the teams just all of a sudden pop
1: up directly after slavery they've there's yes so something's there's there's a lot more to the story you know i mean like i said that national story i think it's been covered pretty solidly mm-hmm. i wanted to do it because i wanted us to focus on those eight texas guys that played such a big role in that national negro league since it was the 100 year anniversary but for me the real story is right there what we're talking about getting down and dirty and finding out all right how far back does this thing go does it go back as far as the 1850s, 1840s, when baseball was really starting to take off in the nation as a whole, and it had pretty much reached Texas, because I think baseball got to Texas during the 1840s uh, when we were fighting the Mexican-American War in the 1848 during that period of time. I think military brought it here. That's, that's my hypothesis. Um, I found a few things that back that. And I I think that at some point that's another big research project for me. It's but the, yeah, military so,
0: and the military. there's so, the so military.
1: many rabbit so many rabbit holes to get down that just haven't been covered yet, you know. So let's let's
0: bring it forward a little bit and tell, talk about uh, this being the hundredth year anniversary of the Negro baseball leagues. Well, this is such well, a historic year. I mean, we've got a pandemic going on. Yeah, we've got it's the hundredth year anniversary 20. of women's suffrage. We've got uh, we've got social uprising. So what What do you think, from, from your historical perspective, how do you see baseball's history as being able to speak to today, to what's happening today?
1: The first thing I want to say is it breaks my heart because going into this year, man, so many different groups and organizations, Major League Baseball, the Negro League Museum in in Kansas City, Cooperstown, all of the radio stations that are are the TV stations that carry their local baseball games, their regional baseball games. This was going to be the year that every single baseball game, there was going to be a point that the announcers were going to talk about the 100-year anniversary. Mm -hmm. Every single game. I don't care if it's your local broadcast. I don't care if it's ESPN broadcast, Fox Sports broadcast. The ABC broadcast on Saturday. I don't care what it was. They were going to get their spotlight, and bam, 2020 has happened. Mm-hmm. Glorious 2020. Coronavirus. But, my lord, it's definitely going to go down in the history books. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that story, uh, gosh, if it's not relevant today, when is it relevant? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's as relevant today as the day. They sat there, and they founded it and voted on it that night and woke up the next morning, and the National Negro League was founded. Um, I think the trials and the tribulations that were faced getting to that point are some of the same trials and tribulations that we are facing today. And Mm -hmm. I think at times, whatever side you stand on, I think at times – And probably more often than not, we forget to take a step back and with an apolitical eye, because I think that when you're talking about history at times, and and this is how kind of I approach my research is I try to do it with an apolitical eye because I'm of the ilk that I feel you have to let the facts and the research determine and shape the narrative and the conclusion. If you right, go, speak for themselves exactly. Don't, if you, you go, add something to it, if you go into research with a conclusion and a narrative that is fitting what your political or personal or religious or social beliefs are, then you are making yourself vulnerable to the trap that I feel a lot of historians fall into, and that is shaping the facts that they gather to fit into that preconceived narrative that they went into their research with. Am I making sense on that? Yes. So I, I feel strongly about trying professionally as a historian, because I think that's what it takes is trying to stay apolitical. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, if people on both sides of the aisle, I don't care, R or D, I don't care what you are, need to take a step back and genuinely – Read the history books and read them with an apolitical mind so that they can understand the situation and it isn't in a 2020 vacuum that they're looking at it. You can't look at history through a 2020 lens. It's not fair to the people who created the history and it's not fair to the community that's listening to you today because I think it distorts it for both groups you have to look at it through the lens of the people who experienced it and understand the exact experience they went through in order that that experience does not get repeated
0: you know the and best thing we i uh, 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 to your point the best thing that we can do is put ourselves in the other person's shoes absolutely we try to get a perspective of why is this individual reacting or behaving in this way or why is why does why is the meaning so intense for this person i need to yeah. understand that
1: you, you know, know. miss tip that goes back to what we were talking about earlier when you're asking me uh, a couple questions and i said it's it's all about learning a person's story putting mm-hmm. their, putting yourself in their shoes once you take the time to genuinely learn a person's story I feel like you've done as much as you can to put yourself in their shoes. And it's you know,
0: hard to hate somebody when you when you when, when you have truly put yourself in their position. When you've truly subjugated yourself to okay, this is this is what's going
1: on here. And I think that the the difference between hate and disagreement has been very clouded mm-hmm. the last decade or so. You know, I, I just feel like things are. And, you know, and I think with we... this
0: whole digging in and, and uh, taking sides uh, with with news and, and with uh, politics, uh, I believe in the news we would call it sensationalization uh, 20 years ago, but it's still the same thing where you take one take up one one gauntlet on on one side yep. and and it really shouldn't be that way because news is supposed to be the facts just represented and then uh we get to make a determination the public makes a determination as to what those facts are or in, in you know what whatever authoritative uh, authority uh group or or figure it makes the decision on what what that is or or the individual does but yep. but it's Absolutely. not supposed to be in any way uh driven or influenced by by the the purveyor of the story by the by the media or by the the people that are telling the story we're we're not actually supposed to be influencing that
1: and you know, I'll be honest, I still have a whole lot of faith in human nature and the human spirit. And I, I honestly feel that that the loudest voices are those ones that want to project that, those differences, that want to project us, you know, being at each other's throats. I really honestly believe the majority of us want to look for those similarities. It's just mm-hmm. those other loud voices drown us out, you know. The majority of us just want to go about our daily lives, get along with our neighbors, sit on the front porch, mm-hmm. Pay our bills, take care of our families, you know, just lead a life, and right. and
0: and it's a, a and lead a life where it's okay to have a differing opinion. Yes, but nobody's
1: going to come for you because you can't. Yeah. <laughs> <opinion>. Exactly, <laughs> we've gotten to a point where we can't disagree civilly, mm-hmm. and and that's that's probably one of the scariest things, in my opinion, that's happened because I'm the type of person that. I love talking to people, you know, Mm -hmm. I love having, you know,
0: the the important thing about, about human beings is that, uh, you know, I say this all the time. We're more alike than we are different. And if you want to be heard, then you have to be at every table. So you can not have a democratic party with no black people. You can't have a Republican party with no black people you can't have a an independent party with no hispanic people no black people no uh, people of different ethnic backgrounds have to be in every party they have to be in every group so that means that that means more than uh each party has to go and invite some people in that means that we have to take the initiative and go and join groups that maybe that's not what you would necessarily do, or maybe you don't believe in every, every uh, piece of that ideology, but you believe that you have something to say and and that you can help that group learn more about your
1: group. You have that. That's that's, I a hundred percent agree with you on that. You know, that's, that's a standard I've, I've, I've tried to, to, lead, you know, or that I've tried to project Mm -hmm. to the people around me. And hopefully, you know, even if
0: he is a good example of that, because here you are studying history and there's a plethora of history for you to study. There are so many things for you to study. I'm sure Negro baseball is not the only love that you have in terms of history, but you chose a history that wouldn't readily have been a part of your life in terms of, of uh, the Negro Baseball League. It was because you love baseball. Yeah. Um, but it was a history that that wasn't necessarily your own in the sense that you weren't l- just learning everything about Negro baseball uh, just sitting around at the table. Yes. But now, all of a sudden, uh, you entering into that scene changes things up not just for you, but for the people that you're interacting with too.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the friendships that I have made, you know, uh, some of these men have passed away that have been very close to me and their wives call me and they tell me and, and they invite me to the funeral. And like Joe Lewis, they, I, I mean, they had me as, cause I helped him get his signature, his signatures in the South, uh, the south the southern the Birmingham Negro League Museum that talks about the Southern Leagues, um, him and Raymond and a few of them they've got signed balls in that museum you know there's a legacy there and and I didn't realize I mean I knew he's appreciative but when you're sitting at his funeral and his wife is saying thank you to you you know in front of everybody in front of the entire congregation they're saying we want to thank Greg Garrett for the things he's done and the story he's been able to help Joe tell. And the same with Travis Lefty Vaughn's, you know, his wife the same way. And, and she told me when she called me to let me know he had passed that she wanted me to be sure I understood how much he enjoyed the time me and him were able to spend together. And when I make connections like that to where it goes beyond being my professional historian career, it goes beyond the research, it goes beyond the league baseball it's become a friendship now. You know, it's become somebody I care about.
0: And you're breaking down barriers. Yeah. No,
1: that's, absolutely.
0: That's uh, when we want when we aspire to be better, then we have to step out of our our comfort zone. And you you can be better if you do better. So instead of just sitting behind a stack of books, you opted to get up. Go out and find the people that you were studying.
1: They deserved it. They motivated, motivated me to do that. You know, it, it, why should it just be a name on a page?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Let me talk about my friends, not just a name on a page. Now I'm talking about my friends. So that carries that much more weight you know any,
0: anybody that talks to you can see history coming alive when you're talking about it because you're so so excited about the Negro Baseball League uh it, you know you put so much into uh the Black Diamond exhibit you know that exhibit uh I didn't know what it was going to be like I'm not a historian uh yeah. I and and uh I basically the way that that uh I got involved with it is that I wanted to do something special for um, for the doctors that I I work with um, because they have one of them in particular, uh, Dr. Kumar Sharma. He's he's really a smart guy and he's he uh, discovered a diabetic pathway this year, and I I thought I believe he's going to win a Nobel Prize one day. I tell him that all the time because he's he's doing. Great work for kidney disease. So I said, I want to do something special that that he's never seen before. So let's let's make an exhibit. But I wanted it to be called Barrier Breakers.
1: Yeah, we uh, talked about that up at the exhibit. Yes,
0: right. I wanted it to be called Barrier Breakers, and um, you know we couldn't get the Barrier Breakers uh, off the off the ground, so we ended up with uh, black. Uh, invisible diamond, and I thought, when I saw it, and started thinking about it, I thought, man, this is so apropos for for uh, the doctors that I I work with because they are, you know, for the most part, in, invisible to the public. Yeah, like, most people have no idea. What the behind the scenes they're doing. doing the hard, yeah, they're doing the they're hard just,
1: research. Yeah. They're just Boots doing, on the ground. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They're they're just out there working, you know, saving people from coronavirus. And, <laughs> <laughs> like doing all this exactly. stuff. Yeah, the unsung you know, and ones, like man. Taking these little meetings with me at night. Hey, how you doing? You know.
1: <laughs> the unsung heroes. They're the ones that keep this country going, man. Like, unsung yeah, heroes.
0: You know, like he, he's doing all this great stuff. And uh, so are so are uh, some of the other ones, Dr. Dr. Cigarro, uh, you know, we've just got some really good docs um, that are that are doing major work for kidney disease, and we're, and we're seeing breakthroughs starting to happen. And and I thought mm-hmm. this is perfect because that this describes uh, who they are, that they're, and and it shows that you know history. History does teach us something. It teaches us about camaraderie. It teaches us how to work together because we're in the medical field. A lot of the great, great discoveries that are being made right now, it's being made by a team. You know, there are teams of people working together. You've been enjoying On the Record with Tiffany. We encourage you to share these stories with friends and family. You can listen to other shows by going to 930amtheanswer.com. And join us next week for On the Record with Tiffany on 930am The Answer.